The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have the bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here. Uh, if you're new, I especially want to welcome you. What you have found your way into is uh, about a year and a half year old church plant called Citizens Church. Uh, and we're seeking to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him here in the east side of Charlotte. We want to help uh, the people of this city and the people of our church know and follow Jesus. That's what we're going for. That's what we're after uh, as a church. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to connect with you. If you are new, if you're looking to figure out who Jesus is or how you can get connected to to a local church, uh, whatever that may be, the best way to get connected to us is to fill out one of those blue connect cards in your bulletin, drop it in the lobby on your way out. We'd love to meet you, get to know you, answer any questions you have, give you a gift, all of that fun stuff. Uh, James chapter 3 is where we're going to be hanging out tonight. James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at 13 through 18. Let me pray uh, to kind of settle our hearts and our minds on the text uh, before we dive in tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. God, as we just got the privilege to sing to you and about you, God, that you are master and your maker and your savior and you are ruler of all created things. God, in our, our pride and in our arrogance, God, we would think and presume upon the riches of your grace. God, and I pray that you would give us a deep humility to sing and to say and to ask, who are we that you would be mindful of us? How amazing. How amazing that you would be mindful of us. God, would you settle our hearts on that reality tonight? God, would you settle our hearts on the reality that you are mindful of us? that you want to dwell with us, that you want to have a relationship with us, that you want to come and send your spirit to make a home within us. So undeserved. So incredibly undeserved. Thank you for your word, God. Would we sit up under it? God, would we not try to get outside of it? Would we not try to stand over it? God, would you uh, help our hearts to let it be our authority? We love you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we are right at the halfway point of our series on the book of James. So we're doing 11 weeks. We've done five. We're doing five more after this. So we're six. Six is halfway. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the themes throughout the book have kind of been James setting up this juxtaposition, this kind of either or one or the other. You're either following God this way or you're not following God this way. And so in week one, as a way of recap, we talked about how you can either have living faith that matures through trials or 
or a dead faith that just makes it through trials. In week two, we talked about how you can have a living faith that receives and does God's word, or you can have a dead faith that either doesn't receive or just hears and doesn't actually do. In the following week, we talked about how living faith welcomes in and loves and serves the poor, but dead faith shows partiality. Week four, we talked about faith with works, living faith that has works that back it up versus dead faith that has no works. Then last week, we talked about how living faith controls our speech, but dead faith has an uncontrollable tongue of destruction. And tonight, he's setting up another juxtaposition for us where he's going to talk about living with godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. That's what he's setting up for us, this juxtaposition. You, as a follower of Jesus, you can either have godly wisdom that centers itself on God, follows God, or you can have worldly wisdom. They look different. They have different goals. They shape our lives in different ways. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want to paint this picture for you of godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. I just want to kind of show you what the two ways of living you can have are on offer to you. And then I want to convince you that living faith has godly wisdom. Living faith is godly wisdom. And then we're going to end after I kind of paint the picture of the two options. And I want to apply how four big areas of your life will look different depending on which wisdom system you choose to operate in. I want to show you four specific ways. I'll talk about your job, your marriage, if you're married, your friendships, your relationships, and your relationship to the church. How that will change based on if you live with godly wisdom or worldly wisdom. All right, let's look at it together. James chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. This is what James writes. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. All right, pause there. So before we get to the two types of wisdom, godly and worldly, I want to make sure that we are on the same page about what wisdom is. So wisdom is kind of one of these mega themes in the scriptures. It's referenced in some way, shape, or form over 350 times from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the ways wisdom's often talked about is its importance, that you need to get wisdom, that if you're going to try to follow Jesus in this life, you need to have wisdom. Solomon, who's the Bible says is the wisest man who ever lived wrote about wisdom in this whole book called the Proverbs. And this is just two of the things he says. Proverbs 16, 16. He says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? How much better is wisdom than money, than riches? In Proverbs 4, 7, he says it this way. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. I love that. He's like, if you want to be wise, be wise. <laughs> if you want wisdom, get wisdom. And one of the things the scriptures make clear about this pursuit of wisdom is that wisdom always involves action. In fact, the Hebrew word for wisdom, which part of my pronunciation is shakma, is often translated as skill. And so when the Bible talks about wisdom, it's not talking about knowledge. It's talking about how to live with skill, how to live with godly skill, how to have skill in the way that we go about life. And James himself picks up on it here, right? He says in verse 13, if you're wise, show it by your works, show it by your good conduct. And so there's a distinction between knowledge and wisdom, right? Knowledge, if I can put it this way, is knowing the truth. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the truth. Knowledge is knowing the truth. Wisdom is knowing what to do with the truth. So think about it this way. The Winter Olympics wrap up tonight, right? Anybody been watching Winter Olympics? Yeah, nobody does. They all watch the summer. It's fine. I've been watching the Winter Olympics, and what I think is so fascinating about the Winter Olympics is that it's a bunch of sports I would never try ever, right? 
So I watch the Summer Olympics and it's like, I run, like not as fast as these people or not as far as these people, but like I know the sensation of running, right? Or swimming or things like that. I have no idea what most of the Winter Olympics feel like. Like I cannot ice skate, I cannot really ski, I can't do any of that stuff. But one of the sports in particular I've been so fascinated by over the past two weeks, mostly because my daughter likes it, is the sport of luge. What happens on luge, it's like bobsled, except way more dangerous and scary, is that it's one person with a carbon fiber board laying on their back, going down a mountain at over 90 miles per hour, which I would never do, ever, 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 right? And so I've been reading and studying all of this stuff about luge, like how they steer, how they train, like what their boards are like, like all of these different things. Here's the deal. I have gained over the past two weeks a lot of knowledge about luging. Please do not put me at the top of the mountain. I have no luge wisdom, right? I've gained a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of accrued knowledge. I have no means by which that knowledge will turn into skill, that I will actually live it out. And that's been James's point, really the whole book. He keeps going back to, it's got to get out of your head. It's got to get into your life. He just keeps coming back to that theme over and over and over again. God's word, it's got to get out of your head. It's got to get into your life. How you talk, this idea of a good mouth, good speech, it's got to get out of your head. It's got to get into your life. He's continuing that by today by talking about wisdom, the framework of our lives. And so let's talk about these two systems. I got a chart. Some of y'all love it. Let's look first at worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom. James 3, 14 through 16. He says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Don't say you're something you're not. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. All right, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you where worldly wisdom comes from, what it's centered on, what it creates in us, and then what it culminates in. Let's talk about where it comes from. Worldly wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Worldly wisdom comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil. For hundreds of years throughout church history, theologians have referred to what they call the three enemies of the soul. They say there are distinctly in the scriptures three enemies that are keeping you as a follower of Jesus from trying to follow Jesus. And they name these three enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they're talked about largely in Ephesians 2. That's kind of the main passage for it. But James picks up on it here on 3.15 where he talks about where worldly wisdom comes from. Let me show you this. The first, he says, is that it's earthly. That word earthly can be translated as the world. Now, the world is used in the word world is used different ways in the scriptures. Sometimes it like refers to the planet world. Sometimes it refers to mankind. So you think about like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. God so loved humanity, mankind that he sent Jesus. But sometimes the world, like here in James 3, Ephesians 2 and Romans 12, refers to a system or a pattern or a way of being in a culture that is against God. So when he says that it's earthly, that it's of the world, this enemy of the soul that is the world, it's this external system in which the culture we live in abides in and lives in that is opposed to the way of Jesus. Now, not all wisdom from the culture around us is bad. Not all of it is anti-God, but there are systems which in the culture we live in, thinking like Charlotte and the West, America, 2022, all of that, that is set up against God that is opposed to God. Second thing he says is that this, earthly, this worldly wisdom is unspiritual. 
It's carnal. It's from the flesh. This is something we've talked about a lot over the past uh, few months. The flesh is this internal operating system that all of us have that wants to push us from the inside out against God. Some folks call it our sin nature. It's all the disordered desires within us that pull us away from God. It's that little thing within you that is like, why do I keep doing those sinful things I don't want to do? That's our sin nature, our flesh. And then third, he says that it, it's demonic. It comes from the devil. Our third enemy, the third enemy of our soul is the devil, the, the great enemy of God. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. And Satan's main way of attack to the people of God is not like to get you sick or to mess up your car engine. His primary way, Jesus says in John 8, is through deception and lies. That, God would, that, he, that the devil would speak lies to the people of God to deceive us. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And so here's what he's saying. There's this external system opposed to God, the world. There's an internal system opposed to God, the flesh. And there's a spiritual system opposed to God in the devil. That's where it comes from. That's the system of worldly wisdom. That's where it's coming from, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The best kind of summary I've heard of this comes from a pastor named John Mark Comer who summarized it this way. He said, deceitful ideas, being the devil, that play to disordered desires, our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. And James says that's where worldly wisdom comes from, comes from the three enemies of the soul. So that's where it comes from, but then what is it centered on? It's centered on the self. Over and over and over again in 14 through 16, he says bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. It's all about the self because here's what happens, right? Here's what happens. The wisdom of the world doesn't put Satan at the center. Satan's much too deceiving and smart for that, right? It's not like, okay, you get two options. Either God's on the throne or Satan's on the throne. That's not how it works. He knows that it's not that we want him on the throne. It's that we want us to be on the throne, and so worldly wisdom, this system of living that the world proposes to us is us being about us, us being in charge. And if I can be honest with you guys for a second, I know it's church, but if I can be honest, I want that to be true so badly sometimes. Like I want life to be about me. I do. Like when I drive to work in the mornings, I want life to be about me. I want people to know on the roads, get out of my way. I'm important. I'm in charge. I have somewhere that I'm going. It's about me. When I go to work and I show up, I want it to be about me. I want people to do what I want, follow what I want, do everything. I want it all to be about me. When I get home after work at night, I want to walk in the door and to have my home and my family be about me. I want Lindsay to show up at the door and be like, welcome home, wonderful husband. Here's a steak and a beer. Do you want to watch the NBA or how about golf? I know you love to watch golf. And then I want Harper to run up and be like, welcome home, dad. I'm not throwing any temper tantrums tonight because life is all about you. <laughs> and I want me to be like, yes, it is all about me. My heart wants that. Some of you are like, that's our pastor. It is. Amen. <laughs> and you do too, right? Is there not that part within you that wants to be on the throne? That wants to be in charge. And here's what happens. The devil with his deceitful ideas says, hey, you're on the throne and our flesh craves it and wants it so badly. And then everything in the world around us would say, yeah, that's right. You're on the throne. Every commercial we see, every Instagram ad that pops up, every conversation we have with friends that would reinforce this deceitful idea that played to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society that all of life would be about us, that we would be the center. Now, what happens when we're the center? What does it lead to? What does it create in us? What well, creates in us bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, right? 
Because here's what happens. If I'm in the center of the universe, if the sun revolves around Tim, if I'm awesome and I'm the one that everything's about, then here's what happens. When somebody else is doing better than me, when someone else has a more successful church than I do, when someone else is doing better at their career, making more money, has more obedient kids, is further along, or just generally better at life, I have one option. And what do I do? I get selfishly bitter and jealous. Him? He has more than I do? Him? That guy? With that personality and that stuff? He? Bitter jealousy. I cannot believe they would have more than me. And then what does that lead to? It leads to selfish ambition, right? What's my answer to that? I have to do more. I have to work harder. I have to put more hours in. I have to labor more, strive more. I have to go for it more. Why? Because I'm jealous of what they have, Been the world revolves around me. Don't they know it revolves around me? I need to remind them and do whatever it takes to remind them the world is about me. And here's what that culminates in. Culminates in discord and evil. Right? If you're living for you and I'm living for me, what option do we have except for disorder and evil? No option. Let me give you a really simple example, simple and silly example of this, right? Four-way stop signs. I hate four-way stop signs. Because here's what happens at a four-way stop sign. Every other time you're driving along the road, everyone thinks they're the most important car on the road, right? Like they just do. They're like, I'm going where I'm going. You can get out of my way. Except for four-way stop signs. You show up to a four-way stop sign, especially the one in Plaza that I pass all the time when I'm coming to church. And it's like, oh, no, excuse me, after you. No, you go ahead. Oh, you, me, you, me, you, me. No, you go ahead. And then we wait for an hour deciding who's going to turn. <laughs> it's very frustrating, but here's the deal, right? If it was the reverse, how chaotic and disorderly would that be? If everybody showed up to a four-way stop sign going, I'm in charge, boom. What, what, leads, what does that lead to? Disorder. That's just a small, silly example of what happens in our lives. If you're living for you and I'm living for me, what choice do we have for that to lead to disorder and evil? We see this all the time in the world around us. All of the time. What leads to the dissensions? What leads to the fights? What leads to the disorder in our relationships? It's me being about me and you being about you. And those things are going to clash. They're not going to line up. And James says all of that is the wisdom of the world. All of that is the wisdom of the world. Okay, before we apply that into our lives, let's talk about godly wisdom. Let's talk about the other option laid before us in James chapter 3. Godly wisdom, 17 and 18. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness and sown in peace by those who make peace. Godly wisdom, first and foremost, comes from God. Spoiler alert, I know. He says it, right? He says it comes from above. It comes from God. God has a way of living that he desires all of us to live into, all right? Here's how this works. Genesis 1-1, right? What does the Bible say? In the beginning, who? God. God speaks and life begins. God is the author and designer and creator of all things, like we just sang about in the song right before the sermon. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1. He says, for by him, him being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So if all things are created by him and through him, right, if he is the author of life, then he knows how life is supposed to be lived, right? My favorite illustration of this is to think about the iPhone, right? Most of us in here have an iPhone. You know who created the iPhone? Steve Jobs, right? And he created the iPhone with a purpose, 
He created the iPhone to be a mobile device in which you would make calls, send texts, get on the internet, play games. Now here's, imagine this. Imagine you met Steve Jobs, if, obviously if he was still alive, and you said, uh, hey Steve, I have an iPhone. I love it. Super awesome device. I know you created it. I just want to let you know, my preferred use of the iPhone is to use it as a soup stirrer. Like when I'm making chili, I just kind of stick my iPhone in and I'm like, yes stir the chili. And so I'm just wondering, like, it works well, like, one or two times, and then it stops working if I continue to use the iPhone that you created in a way that you did not intend to create it. That would be foolish, right? Wisdom would say, hey, Steve Jobs, thanks for this awesome invention and creation that you were the author and designer of. Hey, how should I use it? That's what godly wisdom does. It goes to God and it says, hey, you are the author, creator, designer of life. Obviously, you know how life is supposed to be lived, how it's supposed to work. How would you have me live with this life you've given me in this world you've given me? God, tell me your design. Tell me how it is you want me to live. That's why his word says in Psalm 119 that his word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That God's revelation of himself would show us how we are to live. And in God's design for life, he designed the whole thing to be centered on himself. So not only does it come from God, it's centered on God. This is a central truth you need to understand in your Christian life, and we're going to hit it for a second. God is first and foremost for God. God is first and foremost for God. That second part of the Colossians verse says it this way. So he says in, in 116, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and what? For him. By him, through him, and for him. So all of God's creation is not just so we have stuff to enjoy. It's not so we just are happy or joyful or so that we can enjoy our lives. We want to be the center of the universe. I want to be the sun in which everything revolves around, but that's just not reality. God is the center. God is on the throne. It's all about him. And listen, that's not a selfish thing or a self-centered thing. We talked about this yesterday in the apologetic seminar. God being for God before he's for us is not selfish or self-centered because here's the reality. There is a lie that this is the creation narrative. Here's how it works. God created the world. And it was awesome, and there were animals, like lions and stuff, and God was very lonely. He was very sad, and so in order to not be lonely anymore, he created some man and women. And he was like, hey, Adam and Eve, make me not lonely because I'm sad and lonely. So he created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebelled. They said, no, we want to be like God. They ate the fruit, and so God was extra, extra sad that the people he created didn't actually make him not lonely anymore, so he sent Jesus into the world to reconcile them back so he could no longer be lonely. It's not what happened. It's not what happened at all. You see, God from eternity past has existed in perfect relationship. It's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from before time began have loved one another deeply, have lived in deep relationship and communion. And so creation comes not because God is lonely, but out of an overflow of his abundance, out of an overflow of his love out of an overflow of the love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had for one another. God creates because in his kindness and in his grace, he wants to share that love and relationship with us. It is amazing that he is mindful of us, right? So God is first and foremost not for us. He is first and foremost for himself. I'll give you another example, Psalm 23. We love Psalm 23. We sing it, we read it. This is what it says, Psalm 23. It's gonna be on the screen. Psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. All right, pause there. This sounds like God is really into us, right? Like, look at this. I mean, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Thanks God for the naps, for restoring my soul. Like, this sounds like I am awesome. Thanks God for being about me. Notice what the end of verse three says, right? Why does he do this? For his name's sake. Church, God is not ultimately about being for you. He's ultimately about being for himself. And that is wonderful because being for himself means he wants to share his glory and give you a part of that relationship that he's dwelt in for eternity. It's the most beautiful, blessed, best thing there can be. I want to be the center of the world. And God over and over and over again says, no, it's about him. It's about his glory. Everything in our lives, he is on the throne. God is primarily, first and foremost, not about us. He's about him. That's the most beautiful reality and truth because here's what it creates in us. It creates in us humility, right? If we're able to grasp that, if we're able to understand that, okay, God, you are for you. You're not first and foremost for me. And out of you being for you, you love me, welcome me, have grace for me, call me your own. But because you're first and foremost about you, that means I'm freed up to not have to be the center, not to be in charge, not have to have everything be about me, but rather I'm freed up to respond to your love for me with love for you and love for others. So if I get offended, if somebody is mean to me, if somebody doesn't go my way, if somebody doesn't know and understand the memo that life is about me, that's okay because it's not. And so I have humility. I can respond in grace and kindness and love. And guess what it culminates in? Peace and righteousness. Peace and righteousness. That's what James says, right? He gives this whole list in verse 17, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, all of this stuff. And then he summarizes it in verse 18. He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, how does that happen? Well, if God is for God and the world revolves around him and I have humility, then what does that lead to? Righteousness. It means I say no to sin and yes to God more and more and peace with one another. Because I'm able to forgive you, you're able to forgive me, we're actually able to live in deep relationship. Peace and righteousness. All right, that's the two paths laid before us. Worldly wisdom, godly wisdom. You, you can't have both. You can't. It doesn't work. You can't be on the throne and God on the throne. It doesn't work. If you're trying to have both, chances are you're just having worldly wisdom. Got to be clear about that. But here's what I want to do. I want to put this into four specific areas of your life. I just want to show you how parts of your life will look different depending on if you're living with worldly wisdom or godly wisdom. All right, I'm going to try to push this into your life. Not all will apply to you, but at least one, I pray, will apply to you. Let's talk about our friendships. Living in friendships with worldly wisdom, here's what it looks like. The devil lies to you, tells you friendships are all about me. My, my, it's me, me, my friendships are about me. My, my flesh eats it up. Yes, you're right. Friendships are all about me. Relationships are all about me. My friends exist for me. My friends exist to make me less lonely, to make me feel included, to build me up and care for me. That's the role of my friends, right? And the world agrees. Yes, you're right. Cut off anybody who's difficult. Cut off anybody who doesn't love you well. Cut off anybody who's kind of draining. Your friends should exist for you. If they're not with you, cut them out. So what happens is because friendships are all about me and my worldly wisdom, when I consider someone a friend who doesn't love me as I think they should, I have no option but to push them away. Because friendships revolve around me. And so if you don't know that, if you don't get that memo, if you don't revolve your life and our friendship also around me, then when you don't call, when you don't invite me, when you don't check in, when you don't ask the right questions, when you don't say the right thing, when you don't support me how I want, then in my selfishness, I'm done with you. 
eh, you didn't do it right, sorry. Ah, uh, you asked that question, I really wanted you to ask that question. Ah, uh, you said that statement, and that was a little too, uh, you were a little too pushy, a little too harsh, no thanks. What does that culminate in? Obviously, disorder and evil. Broken friendships, gossip, slander, belittling, cutting down, canceling. Ugh, can you believe that person didn't know that our friendship is about me? Now, obviously, we never say that, but that's what happens under the surface, right? Godly wisdom in our friendships says, no, my life is about God. <laughs> and my friendships are also about God. And living in good relationships, good friendships, is part of how I glorify and honor and love God. And so my friendships are good, they're a blessing, but they're not ultimately about me. And so I'm freed up to enter the coffee or the dinner or the hangout with my eyes and thoughts actually off of me and what I need in that moment and actually putting them on someone else. I'm able to enter into that party going, hey, it's not about who's going to talk to me and make me feel okay. It's about who can I love, who can I serve, who can I be there for, which means when someone doesn't love me like I should and a friend is not there for me like I think they should be, I have wisdom from above, which verse 17 says is full of mercy, meaning I can be quick to forgive. I can be quick to show mercy. I can be quick to extend grace, regardless of how imperfect they are or I am or they were. I can have a heart of mercy and humility saying, hey, all friendships are a gift from God. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. It's okay, I can forgive. Which leads to peace and righteousness, right? So I learn to be merciful and you learn to be merciful. It's not one strike you're out type of friendships. There's harmony as we seek to lay down our pride and selfishness. That's friendships. Let's talk about our work. Worldly wisdom in our work, you get the thread. Devil flesh world, they get together. Hey, your job's about you. Your vocation is about you. Your work is about you. It's about you getting ahead. It's about you getting validated. It's about you getting identity. It's about you making as much money as you can with as little effort as possible. It's all about you. So in response to that, why wouldn't I cut corners? Why wouldn't I do as little work as possible as long as I look good to my boss? Why wouldn't I do what I need and then just, you know, leave my computer logged in, kind of set it to the side, answer an email occasionally, and watch Love is Blind season two, hypothetically. I didn't, that's a bad show. I'm just kidding. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. And it, why would I invest in my coworkers? Why would I put forth more effort? Why would I work hard unless there's a tangible reason to grind? It's all about me, which culminates in evil, right? I'm willing to be apathetic. I'm willing to be lazy. I'm willing to just do good enough, cut some corners as long as my boss doesn't notice. And that unrighteousness and evil starts bleeding into other areas of our life. If I can cut corners at work, why wouldn't I cut corners everywhere else? Godly wisdom says life is about God. So my job is about God too. So it's a common grace gift from God. He has placed me in and called me to, regardless of if it's fulfilling, regardless of how difficult it is, regardless of how my coworkers or boss treat me. It's an opportunity for me day in and day out to serve him and to love others and to grow as a disciple to Jesus. And so what do we do? We work with a pure and sincere heart, verse 17, right? I'm gonna work hard with integrity, even when no one's looking. I'm gonna do good work because my work is worship. And it says something about how I view God. And it culminates in righteousness, it leads to a righteous life. As we learn to honor God with our 40 or 50 hours a week, it bleeds over into other areas of our lives as well. Let me give you two more marriages. World, flesh, and devil, lying again. Your marriage exists for you, you're the center. Your spouse better live out that Ephesians 5 calling. They better sacrifice for you. They better love you. They better serve you as Christ served the church. That's what it's about. Make sure they're doing that. They should meet every need. They should make sure you're emotionally fulfilled, cared for, loved, which means when they don't, how do you respond? Anger, rage, cold shoulder, which is just rage kept internal. 
malice towards our spouse, just bitterness through and through, and it culminates in disorder, right? A marriage that's all over the place. No grace, no peace, no mercy, no forgiveness. Godly wisdom says marriage, just like everything else in life, is not about me. It's not about my spouse. Our marriage is about God. Ephesians 5, the main point of that text is that ultimately marriage is about Christ in the church, that it points forward to this day where we'll be united with Christ in eternity. And so our marriage is for God's glory, which means I can love my spouse even if they're not living up to my expectations or the Bible's expectations, which means marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100-100, and when it's not 100-100, it's 100-0, and I still give 100 I still love and I still serve despite how my spouse treats me, despite whether they're sacrificing for me or loving me or treating me how I feel like I deserve. I still go in with a posture of love and sacrifice. And so when they don't sacrifice like I want them to, when they don't revolve their lives and our marriage around me like I want them to, when they don't engage with me like I want them to, instead of lashing out, I respond how? With gentleness, godly wisdom. I can forgive, I can love regardless. And it culminates in peace. Peace between my spouse and I as we learn to love and sacrifice and forgive. I know y'all are getting the point. You're like, we get it. Move on. Let me give you one more. Church. Just like everything else in life, church is about me. My preferences, my wants, my desires, even in like a super Christian-y type of way, even in a way that's like this church ultimately is about making sure I grow spiritually, which sounds really good and is part of it. And so because it's about me, when it doesn't live up to my expectations, or when someone doesn't respond to me like I want in community group, doesn't answer me like I want, try to push in too much, how am I supposed to respond? Right? How do I respond? If church is primarily about what I want, my growth, people coming around me to push me towards Jesus, then how do I respond when I have to be the one to give? Or when someone responds like I don't like? What if they want to address my sin? What if they want to call me out on a blind spot they see? What if they want to encourage me in a direction that's different than what I want? What if they want to call me towards Christ instead of my immediate desires? I'm not going to listen. I'm going to push back. I'm going to argue. I'm going to justify. And then I'm going to passive aggressively shun. Because this is supposed to be the place I'm built up, not called out. Or godly wisdom says church, like everything else, is for God. That this exists not for you, not for me, for God. For God to get the glory as his people come together and live in unity and worship Jesus and invite others to follow him. So if it's about God, when someone presses on me, then I can actually believe in mercy and humility. I can be open to reason, as verse 17 says, which godly wisdom means I'm just open to listen to others and I'm not so uh, in love with what my thoughts think all the time. But instead, I'm actually open to listen to others and to believe, hey, they actually are trying to point me to Jesus because they want his glory more than my love for them or to be kind to me. They actually want me to look like Christ. They want me to follow him, leading and culminating in peace with them, peace with God, righteousness in my life. Two completely different systems of wisdom that'll totally change how you live in all relationships. It'll totally change how you live in your friendships, how you live towards the world, how you live in your marriages. Two completely different systems that all start with, hey, who's on the throne? Who's on the throne? Are you on the throne or is God on the throne? Who are you listening to? The world, the flesh, and the devil? Because they're right there, deceiving, father of lies. Are you listening to God? Are you getting in his word? Are you getting around his people and listening 
to him. That's the invitation for tonight. So let me give you real quick, we'll finish up with this, two steps, two steps to get this godly wisdom. If you're like, yes, I want to live for God. I want to live with his wisdom. I want him on the throne. Two really quick, easy steps. We'll, we'll close with this. Number one, ask God. Ask God. James 1.5. Way back at the beginning of James, five weeks ago, James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God, help me to live wisely. <laughs> that should be a prayer we're praying all the time. God, in this friendship, in this conversation, in this uh, back and forth, I just feel like there's animosity between me and this person. I don't know how to address it. I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know how to press in here. Help me live with wisdom. Hey, in my frustration with my spouse, they just keep doing that thing over and over and over again, and I just can't seem to get through to them. God, help me live with wisdom. God, my boss asked me to do that thing at work, and I don't feel like it's right. I'm not sure. Should I cut that corner? Like, how do I honor him and also honor you with my vocation? God, give me wisdom. Got that person in my community group. I really feel like I need to say that thing to them. I really feel like I need to push in a little bit. I really feel like I need courage here. God, would you give me wisdom? Let him ask God, who gives what? Generously. God's not trying to hide his wisdom from you. Oh, good luck with that. Go on the hunt, go on the search, figure it out. No, he wants to give generously. Number two, fear God. Fear God. Psalm 111.10 says it this way. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. You can ask God for wisdom all you want, but James 1 says, if you're a double-minded man, meaning you still want to be on the throne of your life, then he's not going to give. He gives generously to all who ask if you ask wanting in fear to honor him, wanting to put him on the throne. And fear is this reverence. It's this worship. It's saying, okay, God, you're on the throne because you're worth it. You're on the throne because you're worthy. So I'm going to live in light of you. I'm going to live in light of your greatness and your goodness. Here's the good news for us as we close and we transition into communion. We don't have to live in worldly wisdom. You don't have to have a life driven by jealousy. You don't have to have a life driven by selfish ambition and pride. You don't have to have a life that's centered on you. Because here's the deal. If you've been trying to live that way, you know it doesn't work. It does not work to be on the throne of your life. And you know that. But here's the good news we celebrate every Sunday. That though we have real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that all three are defeated by King Jesus. That Jesus has come. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he has defeated the world. Right? He is making all things new. He has defeated our flesh, that he would take our hearts of stone and give us new hearts and put his spirit within us. And he has defeated our enemy, the devil, and is reigning and ruling forever as a conquering king. And so here's the deal. You don't have to live a life where you are on the throne. You don't have to, because Jesus has come. He has lived the perfect life. He has died the death we deserve. He has risen again, and he offers wisdom to all who would seek his face to all who would come to him, to all who would say, God, give me wisdom for I fear you and I want you to be on the throne. That's what we celebrate every week when we gather together in the act of communion. You have uh, the elements there, the bread and the cup on uh, your pew. Communion is a, a time every Sunday where we don't uh, just go through a ritual. We don't just kind of like, yeah, let's do some stuff and take some bread and, and drink some juice and things like that, where we actually pause and remember that the three enemies of our soul are not in charge, <laughs> that they're not going to win, that they haven't won, that Jesus has risen, that he is ruling and reigning forever, that he is the conquering king, that we don't have to live with worldly wisdom. 
We don't have to live with this mindset of it all being about us that leads to bitter jealousy, disorder, and evil. So we're going to take communion now in just a second. Uh, If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the only thing we'd ask you not to participate in as a part of our church, not because we don't like you, we're trying to isolate you or uh, anything like that, but because you'd be taking communion, declaring that this is true about you, that Jesus has died for you, and it's just not true yet. But rather than take communion, we invite you to take Christ, to believe in him, to trust in him, to put your faith in Jesus, that he would actually take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'll have folks in the back who would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. But church, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you to take and eat. In the same way, he uh, took a cup of wine after supper. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed by the shedding of my blood. And he said, every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're announcing, remembering, celebrating, looking back and looking forward. You're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. So church, take and drink. We're going to move into a, a time of response like we always do. We're going to have some folks in the back who would love to pray with you and for you. Uh, We're going to stand, we're going to worship, celebrate King Jesus. Um, I would encourage you, if you need prayer for anything, if you want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, if you just have something going on in your life, if you need wisdom, I would encourage you, go back and let them ask God with you and for you, for his wisdom. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's worship and pray. Let me pray for us. The band's going to come up. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for James chapter 3. God, thank you for these two systems of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. God, I, I pray that we would not live with ourselves on the throne. God, that we would not live with us being the center of our universes. God, that you would help us even today see that we are trying to take what you have designed, what you have authored, what you have declared, the system that you have set up where you're on the throne and it's about your glory and your honor and your praise and that we've tried to put ourselves on the throne and that it just doesn't work. And it fails us every time. That we've tried to search, we've tried to fight, we've tried to claw to be our own gods, to be our own kings, to be our own rulers and masters, and it just keeps failing. And we know that because of the gnawing in our hearts. We know that because we have to keep lying to ourselves, trying to convince ourselves that it does when it doesn't. God, so I pray that you would speak. God, that you would move. God, that we would see the most beautiful, glorious reality that you are for you. And that that is so good for us because we get to be wrapped up in that beauty and wrapped up in that love and wrapped up in that glory. God, that we get to now experience in part what we will experience in full, worshiping you, celebrating you, being in your presence, spirit, God, that you, you do change us from the inside out, God, that you're not interested in standing to the side, you're not interested in saying, good luck, figure out how to follow me, God, but that by the power of your spirit, you have put within us a new heart and the power to actually change.
that's about you. God, I pray would be a church that's wise, full of godly wisdom. God, we love you. We need you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.